You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Hope you're doing well. If we haven't met, my name is Clint, and I'm one of the pastors on staff at the church, so thankful to be here with you. Um, Before we jump in this morning, let me give you a quick reminder. This is on the video, but we are doing our first ever membership renewal, Um, and really the heart behind that is that we would just know who is a part of our church. So we believe the church is not a building or a place, right? It's a people that God has called out of darkness and into his marvelous light to follow after Jesus together. And we wanna know who's in, right? So life happens, transitions happen, people move on, whatever it might be. So we wanted to take this month to really just prayerfully consider together putting our yes back down um, as members of CBC. And so if you are a member, um, you should have gotten an email from us last Sunday and that email kind of lines out how to do that process. It really takes a couple of minutes. So if you haven't done that yet, I would encourage you to do that. Not in this moment, because if you do, I'm gonna check and I'll see that you submitted it during this time, right? And so I'll have to send you a little thumbs up email like, I know what you did, you know? Um, no, I'm kidding. But uh, if you are a member and you didn't get an email from us, I've gotten several texts from friends who said, hey, mine must have went in spam folder, I didn't get it, something like that happened. Um, tell you what, if you would take one of the connect cards that's in the seat in front of you, if that's you, Um, and just fill out your name, email, and then put membership renewal and drop it in the box and then uh, we will follow up. We're gonna do this every two years. It'll be a lot easier next time, um, but it's challenging this time because we're just figuring it all out, all right? So thank you for your patience and sticking with us. Um, We're gonna jump in together today, continue our series through the back half of the book of Genesis that we're calling Meant for Good. And so if you have a Bible, will you turn to Genesis 28 with me? That's where we're gonna be this morning. Let me set this up for us. Last May, um, I got on a plane with two of my friends and we flew to northern India, okay? And we were gonna meet up with one of my friends who lived there and we connected with him and then we got on a smaller plane. And when you hear smaller plane, I want you to think much smaller, okay? And then then if, if your mind is naturally going to this thing and going, hey, I wonder how difficult and uncomfortable it is for Clint to travel for over 24 hours on airplanes and small taxis, the answer is very, okay, very difficult. Um, but anyways, we, we get to this, uh, where we're going, and then we cram into a small taxi, and we go even further north, and we get to this little mountain town right on the edge of the Himalayan mountains, okay? And then we spent the next five days of our life trekking our way up to the top of one of these mountains and then down the back uh, side of that, and it was an awful experience, okay? <laughs> it was awful and awesome all at the same time, but the reason why I'm sharing that with you this morning is because... Um, one day, probably day three or four, we were at uh, approximately, tw- I had no, uh, I don't even know how, what, a watch that told me how high it was. We were about 12,000 feet based on what, what I know, all right? So we're working our way up around this tiny little ridge and parts of uh, this hike were basically, there, it was an impassable and so they had built like little foot and a half like ledges for you to walk on, you know? I don't even know how they were standing up there but I, we just trusted them and we just, you know, put our life in those people's hands and we walked across it. Um, anyways, we, we get around this corner, 12,000 feet in the air, and up off the path a little bit, there's like 10 or 12 people, okay? And they have a bunch of, uh, not a bunch, a handful of small children with them, and a goat, right? And I'm like, I had no category for what I was about to see when I turned the corner, you know? I'm like, afraid for my life, and I'm like, why are those children wearing flip-flops, and why is there a goat up here, you know? Just couldn't put it together, there was a lot going on. Um, but then I realized what was happening, Because carved into the mountain beside them, there was this little shrine, right, this little altar. 
And, and I figured out um, what was happening. And luckily, we scooted on down the path so we didn't have to hear or see what was about to happen. But they were about to offer this goat um, to whatever God it was that they worshiped him. Um, and, I, and I didn't think about it then because of how much pain I was in, but um, I thought about it since then, and, and I had the question, why would they go all the way up there to do that? Or they, could, they could make that offering or that sacrifice a lot easier, right? And the reason why they did it was because they believed that if they hiked all the way up to that altar, over 12,000 feet in the air on the side of a mountain, really, if they did that, then God would be more willing to accept them. Like if they went through all that effort and put in that energy, right, God would be more willing, more impressed by their effort. He maybe would be more willing to bless them. And so it's easy to dismiss that, right, because we don't do that, do we? We don't get together with some friends and pick our least favorite pet and hike up a mountain. And uh, I know which one, ours would be, no, I'm kidding. Um, We don't do that, but do we not believe that if we obey, then God is more likely to love us? Do we not believe that if we obey, then God is more likely to be impressed with us or approve of us or bless us? And the thing is that it's not just people that we do this with, right? We also do this, or not just God, we also do this with the people around us. Because we live in a world and a culture that if we're honest, we're full of people looking for identity. Desperate for people to affirm us and tell us that we're good enough. And as a result, we, we define our lives by what we do. We measure our self-worth by what other people say about us. And so we spend our lives working, putting ourselves, our gifts, our talents, we put that on display and we hope people will see that and say, you're great. Or you're really good at whatever. And, and really what happens then is our life becomes impression management. We're managing our, the way other people sees us, see us and think about us. And, and it's a curated life, not a real life. It's social media feeds full of people who always eat awesome meals and always have awesome families and take awesome vacations. It's the curated life. It's impression management and it's an exhausting cycle because we do it to convince the people around us that we're some version of ourselves that we're not and and in hopes that maybe they will speak these affirmation statements over our lives. Again, it's an exhausting cycle and it's why so many of us are afraid when we get a phone call from our boss or a message or from a friend or somebody who says, hey, can we talk? Our first thought is, "Uh uh-oh, I'm caught. In what, I don't know, but there must be something that he knows that I don't know that I did, right? He must know, she must know that I'm a pretender. And this can play out in any area of our lives. For you, maybe it's the affirmation that you want is through your job. And so you work crazy long hours, right? And you make compromises for work away from your family in the ways that you never thought you would because you want your coworkers or your boss to see all that and think, he's trustworthy. He's a hard worker, she's a hard worker. Or maybe it's at home, right? And the house always has to be clean to the point where you can't even live in it. It has to be clean and dinner has to be ready at a certain time and everything has to go the way that you need it to go because if it doesn't, then your spouse or your kids or the other moms might not look at you and think, she's awesome. She's amazing, I wanna be like her, right? And it could be any area of our lives. It could be a relationship. 
where you need that person to think certain things about you. You need them to affirm you and make you feel worthy and valuable. And so you'll make compromises that you promised you never would. You'll do things you said, I'm never doing that again. And then you do. Or you starve yourself and you kill yourself in the gym so that your body looks a certain way. So that that person will always like you or you can kind of keep your hooks into them or whatever it might be. It could be parents or teachers or having good grades. It could be being good at sports. It could be anything, right? On and on we could go. And if you think about it, it's not bad to desire for people to like us. It's not. It's not bad to work hard or to to want to serve your family by cooking dinner and keeping the house clean. But where it goes sideways is when that desire turns into an ultimate desire. And it then becomes the thing that defines you. And here's the biggest problem with it all. If who you are is determined by what other people think about you, then your value, your self-worth will always be tied to your ability to perform. If your value, what gives you worth, is connected to what other people think about you, then your, your ability or that, it'll always be tied to your ability to be perfect. And then what happens if you're not? Like what happens when your identity is being good at whatever and then you have a bad day? What happens if even at no fault of your own, the relationship ends? Or your, your life is your job and then your company downsizes? What happens then when you exhaust yourself, exhaust yourself doing everything you know to do to impress the people around you and still it's not enough? What happens is you're left broken and empty. You don't know where to go. And and what you and I need is a better identity. So what I wanna talk about today is where do we get that? And this is where Jacob is in Genesis chapter 28. And if you were here with us the past few weeks, we learned that Jacob was the younger brother of twins, right? And his older brother was named Esau. And Esau means hairy, okay? Not H-A-R-R-Y, H-A-I-R-Y. He's hairy. And the Bible literally says why. Genesis 25, verse 25 says, when he came out, when he was born, he was red and he was covered all over like a cloak with hair, okay? That's the short end of the stick is what was happening there, right? Like, what do you do if you go to visit someone's baby, go see the baby for the first time, and you would leave describing it, it looked like it was covered with the cloak. That's a tough poker face to have in that space, isn't it? That was Esau. And then his brother Jacob was born, and it seems like he got the better end of the deal when it came to names, but what we find out is that Jacob was a Hebrew euphemism. That, meant, that means he, literally means he, he takes someone by the heel. So when Jacob was born, he came out holding on to Esau's heel. What, the Bible says it, I believe it, right? So this is what's happening. And so it's this Hebrew euphemism that means to trip someone up, to cheat them, to deceive them, and that was Jacob's name. So Isaac and Rebekah named their twin boys Harry and Cheater, okay? And, and my wife is actually gonna give birth in a couple of weeks to our daughter. We haven't decided on her name yet. Um, and so I was studying this, and so I suggested it. I was like, what if we just wait until she's born, and then we can just see what we come up with, right? She didn't like that plan, but... Uh, <laughs> These names end up being a big part of their lives, particularly for Jacob. So you fast forward a few years and the Bible says that Esau was a hunter, that he was a a man of the field, okay, field. So think Bear Grylls meets Ron Swanson, that's Esau, that's who he is. And the Bible says that Jacob, not a man of the field, he dwelled in tents, okay? Jacob's an inside kind of guy. 
He's the opposite of an outdoorsman. And one day, Esau comes in after being gone for several days in the wilderness on one of his little, you know, treks. Maybe he went, maybe he put the stones there on that mountain that I walked on. I don't know, right? He's, he's out in the wilderness and he comes in and he's so hungry that Jacob cheats him out of his birthright for a bowl of soup. So the birthright in this culture belonged to the firstborn son, which was Esau. And the birthright meant this is the one who's gonna get the double portion of the inheritance. So he's gonna get twice as much as his younger brother when it comes to, you know, when Isaac dies, kicks the bucket in his inheritance time. That was the birthright. And Jacob tricks his brother to trade all of that for a bowl of soup. That's who he was. He was a cheater, a manipulator, a deceiver. And then several years later, Jacob actually conspires with his mom to steal Esau's blessing. And the blessing was actually far more important because it wasn't just an inheritance. The blessing meant this is the man, this is the one who will lead the family when the father dies. So he would have the power and the control and the authority. And I know I'm covering this quick, so if you missed this, you can go back and watch it or listen to them online. They're on there on our website. But the way Jacob does this is he comes up with a plan with his mom and he goes into his father Isaac who is on his deathbed and Isaac actually lives for several more decades but he's so sick and he's blind or going blind that he thinks he's dying. And so he calls his son in there and Jacob goes in and he pretends to be Esau and he pretends to be his brother and this is what we have to catch on to for today. He pretends to be his brother so that his dad will bless him. He pretends so that his dad will approve of him and it's actually kind of funny how it goes down but it works. And Jacob slips out of there and seemingly successful, but soon after that, Isaac and Esau, they figure out what happened and that they've been tricked by Jacob again. And the Bible says that Isaac started trembling violently. Other translations would say that he is uncontrollably shaking. So he's so upset, so hurt, so wounded by his son, so tricked that he almost has like a a panic attack, like a seizure. He's trembling. And then Esau, this man's man, the Bible says, uh, wept a great and exceedingly bitter cry. He breaks down, and he says this about his brother, 27, verse 36, should be on the screen. Is he, Jacob, not rightly named Jacob? Is he not? This is an indictment from Esau on his brother. When they named you that, they were right. For he has cheated me these two times, and he took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And Esau gets so ticked that he decides that life isn't worth living if he's gonna be in control. And so he plans to kill his brother, and Rebecca and Jacob hear about Esau's plan. Jacob wants no part of this fight. Skillful hunter versus suit maker, right? It's not gonna go well for Jacob. So he and his mom decide, hey, here's what you should do. Go on this 500-mile journey to see my brother Laban and then get a wife there and wait till Esau cools down and that's where we pick it up here in Genesis 28 verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba, that's where his family lived, and he went toward Haran, that's where Uncle Laban was, and he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down and in that place he slept. So, The reason why I gave you all that background is because I don't think you can grab on to what's happening in this text if you don't know that. So Jacob spent his whole life knowing, not wondering if, but knowing that he was his daddy's second favorite son. They named him Deceiver and he lived up to his name. You cannot show me a man who does not want his father to look him in the eye and say, I'm proud of you. I see you. 
I am proud. Like, you can't show me one. And Jacob spent his whole life knowing I'm, I'm daddy's second favorite. So what do you think Jacob's motivation was when he was stealing Esau's birthright and blessing? So when I read this story historically, I just always thought he wants the inheritance, right? He wants the material wealth from his father, so he wants the double portion of that, and he wants his portion too, and he, he wants the blessing because he wants power and control and authority, and that's probably part of his motivation, but I think maybe more than that is that he wanted Isaac's approval. Again, he literally pretended to be his brother so that his dad would bless him. So that his dad would look at him, see him, and speak affirmation statements over his life. And even though he ends up getting it, it's not enough. Because even though Isaac spoke those words over Jacob, Jacob knew deep down it didn't count because his daddy thought he was Esau. And the same thing is true for us. When we pretend to be someone we're not to earn the approval of the people around us, even if we succeed, we will feel like a failure. Because deep down we know they don't know the real us. They wouldn't, I'm, I'm pretending to be something I'm not so they'll think something about me but deep down I can't even accept it if, I'm, if I succeed in that because I know that's not the real me. And we jump on the treadmill of impression management again. It completely isolates us from the world around us and it, it, it makes us live in fear of being found out as a fraud. And Jacob lives a lifetime of this. 77 years of living a life like this and it's all coming crashing down on him in this chapter. Everyone in his family is hurting and here he is alone in the desert with nothing to show for all of his deception. And verse 11 says, the sun was setting, so he takes a rock and he lays down and he goes to sleep. So this is literal language, which means the sun was actually going down, but it's also figurative language because the author wants you to understand something, that Jacob's life was getting dark. His life was broken. And then it says he used a rock for a pillow, which means he had nothing better to use. And the author wants you to know and see that Jacob was at rock bottom. Pun intended, right? Behind him was sin and failure. In front of him, 450 miles between him and his uncle Laban's house, fear, anxiety, worry. What is gonna come up against me there? Again, he's not Esau. He's not a man of the field. He spent his, his life in tents. This would not be a safe journey for him. He's afraid. Behind him, failure. In front of him, fear. Above him, darkness. And underneath him is the brokenness and difficulty of being cold and alone and afraid and uncomfortable. And then look what happens next, verse 12. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. So real quick, what would you expect God to say to Jacob here? The cheater? The deceiver? I know what I would say. Jacob, what are you doing? Right? You need to get it together. You need to figure this thing out. It's not gonna work anymore. And that's being gracious because what we would wanna say is, okay, you're so smart, figure a way out of this mess on your own. That's not what God says. Verse 13, God says to him, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
So God shows up to Jacob in the middle of the desert. Figurative and literal desert. And he's broken. And he's filled with shame. And he's desperate for approval from his father. And God repeats to Jacob the covenant promise that he gave to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac. And he promises land and offspring and blessing. But then he says something to Jacob that he hadn't said to his grandfather and his father. Look at verse 15. He says, behold, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go. And I'll bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. So not only does God promise Jacob land and offspring and blessing, he also promises him his presence. Not just, here's what I'm gonna do for you, but I'm also gonna be with you. God says, behold, I'm with you, I'll keep you wherever you go, I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you, and the point is, not only am I with you now, not only will I be with you in the future, but I will be with you always. And before God says this to Jacob, he gives him a dream. And he shows him this vision of a ladder connecting heaven and earth. And this is one of those passages that if you grew up in church, you're familiar with, right? You've heard of Jacob's ladder, but you're not exactly sure what it means, right? So what is Jacob's ladder all about? For starters, it probably wasn't even a ladder, like we would think about it at least. So the Hebrew word here is only used this one time in the Bible. And the ESV, if you're reading there, has a footnote that says, or a flight of stairs, and, and from everything I read, it seems like that's actually, this grand staircase is actually what's in view here because culturally this would have made sense to Jacob. In this area of the world, people would build these temple-like structures called ziggurats, right? And there's these massive buildings with these giant staircases all the way up to the top. And the idea was that if these people came together in towns and cities, they'd come together, they say, we need to build a ziggurat because we need to get close to God and they put their time and their energy and their effort into it and they, and they got to a place because if we could get higher, if we could get closer to the heavens, then we actually have a better chance of meeting with God. And this is actually the, the type of structure that was being built in Genesis 11, if you're familiar with the, the story of the Tower of Babel. So I don't know about you, but whenever I read that story, Tower of Babel, I always thought about the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I don't know why, that's just what I always pictured, like this round, you know, Roman type, uh, a tower, but in reality, it was one of these. And so there should be a picture on the screen. Again, they're called ziggurats. This is likely what Jacob had in mind when he, what God showed him, right? This massive structure with this giant staircase and angels were going up and down on it. And verse 13 says that the Lord stood above it in his dream. This massive temple with this staircase and these angels going up and down and the Lord was there. There's actually another way to translate this verse. The ESV puts it in a footnote as well. It could mean the Lord stood beside him depending on what it is referring to there. And to me, that one makes more sense, especially considering what God says to Jacob in uh, verse 15 when he says, I'll be with you and I'll keep you and I'm never gonna leave you. But either way, the point is the same. God wants Jacob to know something about who he is. He wants Jacob to know, you will get the birthright. You are gonna get the blessing, but it will not be because you deserve it and it will not be because you work to steal it from your brother. It will be because I want you to have it because I am gonna give it to you. What this dream means is that God has given Jacob access to his presence, access to God. And what I want you to see in this is that God meets Jacob at his lowest point. 
His family is broken. Everyone around him is hurting. His brother wants him dead. His parents send him away. He's lonely, afraid, and full of shame for all of his past sin and past failure. And he's lying on his back, asleep on a rock. And God meets him in that place. And he doesn't say to him, Jacob, you need to do better. He doesn't show up and say, I'm with you, but if you want me to stay, you need to get it together. He says, I'm with you, and I'll be with you always. Instead of that, he shows him this picture of this massive staircase, right, symbolizing connection between heaven and earth, and there's these angels going up and down. And so when you hear angels, don't think it's a wonderful life where there's this little old man who's being nice to George Bailey so that he'll get his wings, right? No, it's these massive and these powerful heavenly beings who exist to do God's work and they're going up and down and as Jacob is probably cowering down in fear because when you read the Bible, that's what happens when people see angels. They're afraid because they know they deserve punishment from God. They know they're experiencing something that's different than them completely. As that's happening, Jacob's afraid of whatever punishment is about to come. All of a sudden, God's with him. And what he's saying is you don't have to work to earn what I wanna give you because you couldn't earn it if you tried. And what he's saying is you don't have to pretend that you're someone you're not in order to get my approval because I see the real you. And I ain't going anywhere. People say they like the New Testament better than the Old Testament, right? Because the New Testament is God is love and grace. In the Old Testament, God is all wrath and judgment. We're 28 chapters in. What does this look like to you? Grace and mercy. Hebrews 13, eight says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the Old Testament, Lamentations three says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Friends, our God is gracious and he is faithful. His love and his approval can't be earned. It can only be given to us as a gift. That is what grace means. And so let me ask you, do you believe that? I'm not asking, do you know it? I know you know it or else you wouldn't be. I'm not asking if you've heard it. I'm saying, do you believe it? That even at your lowest, that even in the most broken and shame-filled places of your life, God sees you and he's with you and he'll always be there. Do you believe that his mercy is new every morning, that he has given us an identity that's far better than anything we could earn on our own? In Genesis 28, Jacob is becoming aware of the mercy and the grace of God for the very first time. Not that it's never been there with them, he's just now becoming aware of it. And I want you to see how he responds because we, need, we should be asking ourselves this question, how should we respond to the grace and mercy of God? That's true about God, how then should we respond? And there's three things I wanna point out to you. Look at verse 16. Well, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? 
This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So the first way we see Jacob respond to the grace and mercy of God is with faith. So Jacob had what I've heard called a postcard faith, right? He had heard about God from his father and from his grandfather. He's heard, heard about God and he's seen pictures, postcard faith, but he had never experienced God for himself until that night. And the Bible says that Jacob woke from his sleep. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter five where the apostle Paul says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and the light of Christ will shine on you. Jacob had spent his whole life with a postcard faith in God. He heard the stories and seen the pictures, but he hadn't experienced God for himself. Look at what he says in verse 17. How awesome is this place? What place is he talking about? The place in verse 11 that was so unremarkable, the Bible three times just says a certain place, which means there was no tree or no hill or no creek or nothing to to point it out to make it remarkable. And Jacob wakes up and says, this place is awesome. The place where he came face to face with his own inability to deceive his way into the life he wanted. The place of brokenness and despair when Jacob went to sleep and now all of a sudden, this place is awesome. What changed? His circumstances didn't change. Right, he's still alone, he still blew up his family, he's still afraid of what was ahead of him on the journey to Uncle Laban's house. None of that changed. What changed was his perspective that now he knew that God was with him. And Jacob responds in faith. And he says, how awesome is this place? This is none other, he says, than the house of God. The place of despair is a place of God's presence. It's the house of God. He says, it's the, it's the gate of heaven. So house of God means this is where God lives. This is where his presence is. The gate of heaven is, this is the access point to that presence. And Jacob wakes up and says, this is where God is. Remember who we're talking about here. This is Jacob, the cheater, right, the deceiver, a 77-year-old man who spent his whole life working to earn the approval of his father and the people around him. And one night, in his brokenness and his despair, when Jacob least deserved it, God shows up and says, I'm with you. Jacob responds in faith, and then he responds in worship. Look at verse 18. So early in the morning, right, he didn't didn't dilly-dally. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on the top of it. So he's anointing it. And he called the name of the place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. So Jacob worships. He takes the stone that he went to sleep on and he sets it up as an altar to God. This is incredible. Again, you have to remember who we're talking about here. This was a man at his lowest point. All he had to use as a pillow was a rock. Probably the hardest place in his life, the hardest, most uncomfortable, most difficult circumstantial moment of his life. In the middle of the desert, wakes up the next morning after coming face to face with the grace and the mercy of God and he takes that hard pillow and he sets it up as a pillar. Those difficult circumstances become for Jacob an opportunity for worship. He anoints it as an altar of worship to God. You ever slept on the ground? Did you wake up the next morning feeling good, feeling spry, right? 
ready to jump up and worship. Imagine how Jacob must have been hurting. I ain't even halfway to 77. And I wake up most mornings hurting after sleeping in my own bed, right? My shoulder's asleep. I got this crud going on. Earlier this week, I pulled something in my ribs coughing, okay? Imagine how Jacob must have been hurting. He had the same excuses to complain that morning as he did the night before, but instead, he worshiped God. And so, let me ask us this. How do you respond when life is difficult? How easy is it for us to complain to God when life doesn't go the way that we want it to? And I think a lot of the time, we're like Jacob when he says, surely the Lord is in this place, but I didn't know it. Because we get so stuck in our circumstances, so busy complaining about what we don't have and asking God, why would you let this happen to me? That we miss him. And we forget to ask a better question. God, what are you doing in my life that I can't see right now? God, I know you're with me. Help me to see it. Help me to believe that you are at work in this mess. Help me to believe that despite the fact that this is incredibly challenging, you're with me and you're enough. Help me to worship you. So Jacob responds in faith and in worship and he responds with a commitment. And I want you to see this, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and if he'll keep me in the way that I go, and if he will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar, it shall be God's house. And all that you give me, God, I'll give you a tenth. So there's actually two ways to read this. After this encounter with God, Jacob makes a vow, right? He makes a commitment, and, and the two ways to read this is, are this way. One is the word if in verse 20. It, it could mean, because of the form of the original language that it's in, it could mean since, which changes it a little bit. So since you've promised me all these great things and you're gonna give me land and offspring and blessing and you promise to be with me, since that's true, then you will be my God. That changes it a little bit. But the other way to read it is like this, the way it shows up in the ESV, that the word if actually means if. And it reveals that Jacob still doesn't understand what God is trying to say to him, that God showed up to him in the middle of the desert, gave him this incredible vision, this unbelievable promise about all that God was gonna do for Jacob, and what Jacob does is he tries to make it about what he's gonna do for God. Uh, God, that's awesome, you're gonna do those things for me, but guess what, I can climb a few steps too. That's what Jacob's saying, still trying to earn it. Either way, I think it reveals that as Jacob makes this commitment, he wants to bring a little fine print to God. What this means is that even though Jacob had this encounter with God's grace and mercy, that he'd experienced some heart change, it means that he was still a work in progress. That encourage anyone else this morning? Anyone else a work in progress? You deal with a little yeah, but theology. Here's what that is. Because you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, but theology is you show up at church or community group and you hear things like, hey, God loves you. God delights in you. You hear things like the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies will never end. And you hear that and you think, 
yeah, but. Yeah, but what about all the things I've done? Yeah, but I don't deserve it. Yeah, but I'm a cheater. Yeah, but I'm a pretender. I've stolen, I've lied. Yeah, but. And what's interesting is God doesn't correct Jacob when he makes this vow. He doesn't take back his promise. He doesn't say, never mind. I tried to bless you, but you don't get it. You never will. Forget it, right? God doesn't do that. And what we have to see in that is that God is patient with us. Let me say it this way. God is patient with you. Still his promise remains. He doesn't demand that we're perfect. He knows we're not and the promise remains. What's the promise? I'm gonna give you land and offspring and blessing. He says, I will be with you. That the never ending help and companionship with the God of the universe is ours forever. That's the promise. And Jacob commits himself to God. He does it imperfectly, but he makes a commitment nonetheless. That his encounter with God changes him. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, what are we committed to? What bearing does this promise make in your life on a day-to-day basis? That God says, I'm with you and I'll never leave you. I know it affects your Sunday morning, because you're here. But what about your Monday morning? What about Sunday afternoon? I think a lot of us are in this space where we say, God is with me. That's cool. What do you guys want for lunch? A lot of us are in the space where we say, man, God is with me and he loves me and he approves of me and he delights in me and I don't have to pretend anymore and and all this is true about me. That's cool. But you know what would be really cool? If our tax returns a little bigger than we thought and we could go on a vacation, right? Does this promise from God make any difference in your life on a day-to-day basis? Because it should because it changes everything. The never-ending help and companionship of God is yours forever. You didn't do anything to earn it, you can't do anything to lose it. Jacob comes face-to-face with the grace and mercy of God and he responds in faith and in worship and in a commitment to God. And so you might be thinking right now, hey, that's great for him. Good news for Jacob, he shows up in a dream and blesses him and gives him this great promise, but what does that have to do with us, with me? Let me show you one more thing. John chapter one, you don't have to turn there. It should be on the screen when we get to that part, but John is telling this story about how Jesus' ministry is starting. So Jesus is traveling around and he's calling people to follow him. And he sees a guy named Philip, and he says to Philip, hey, you wanna follow me, and Philip does. I wanna be like Philip, just goes, right, just follows him. So what Philip does is he runs and, and finds his friend Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, he says, we found him. It's this amazing story, he says, we found him, we found the one that Moses has written about, we found the one that the prophets were talking about. His name is Jesus, he's from Nazareth. We found him, he says, you gotta come see him. And Nathaniel's a skeptic and he says, nothing good can come from Nazareth. There's no way he's the Messiah. The Bible says, verse 47, and Philip still says, you gotta come see him. And so Nathaniel's coming toward Jesus and Jesus sees him and he says, behold, and there's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. There's an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. 
And Nathaniel's freaked out. And he says, how do you know me? That's how John says it. I think what he might have said was, you don't know me, right? Less of a question and more of an accusation, not how do you know me? Like in this, this reverence, just saying, hey, who are you? You don't know me. In verse 48, Jesus says to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So Jesus reads his mail. And, and now, we don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. Could have been taking a nap, right? He might have had the same dream Jacob had. We don't know. He, he could have stole someone's lunch and been eating it. He could have been cheating on his wife. We have no idea what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, but we know whatever it was, the fact that Jesus saw him there was a big deal. And it changed Nathaniel's perspective completely. He goes from, you don't know me, to look at verse 49. Nathaniel said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I say to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? He says, you'll see greater things than these. Verse 51, he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And Jesus points back to Genesis 28. And this vision that he gave Jacob, and he says, heaven's gonna open and these angels are gonna be going up and down, only this time there's not gonna be a staircase. Only this time there's not gonna be a ladder connecting heaven and earth. Instead, they're gonna be going up and down on the Son of Man. And Jesus' point to Nathaniel is that the stairs are gone because from now on, I, Christ, will be your access to God's presence. That's why this promise that God makes to Jacob isn't just for him, but it's for you. Because when God says to Jacob, all the families on earth will be blessed through you, the way he blesses them is because Jesus comes from his line. That's how he fulfills that promise to us. The Christ has come, his name is Jesus, and he's from Nazareth. Come and see. You gotta see him. It's why after Jesus dies on a cross for our sins and he raises again, overcoming sin and shame, he appears to his disciples. And he, he says something to them, and we call it the Great Commission, and he says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. He sends us out as the light of the world, as the salt of the earth, so I want you to teach them to observe all that I've commanded. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what's he say at the end? Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That sound familiar? The good news of the gospel is that he is with us. That God has forever given us his love and approval in Christ. And friends, that is the better identity. That we don't have to pretend to be someone we're not in order for it to count for us because we just read about how our God meets us in the desert at our lowest point, in our most broken, shame-filled spaces of your life. God is saying to you this morning, I see it and I'm with you. And I'm not going anywhere. I heard a pastor say one time, we don't have to be good for God to love us. We just have to know that the God who loves us is good. He's gracious, 
He's merciful, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast loves and we live our lives in response to that grace and mercy, in faith and in worship and in commitment. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna sing and respond to God's goodness and grace. Would you stand with me? As the team comes up, let's pray together. God, you're good and we don't deserve it. Your grace is bigger. Your love for us goes deeper than our best ability to come up short. And that's good news. So I pray, God, that as we sing and respond of the good news of the gospel, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to believe it, not to know it. We've heard it before. Help us to believe it, to have faith. Help us to worship you as you deserve. No matter how deep the valley or dry the desert we're in is, help us to worship you and help us, God, to make a commitment because this truth changes everything. We're grateful for Jesus. We pray in his name.